This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca So we're going to look at tonight, for all intents and purposes, the major Christian proof text. So on your first sheet, you want to look at the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. 52nd chapter, starting with verse 13. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals, so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who hath believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a young root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christians will generally have a Jewish person read this chapter and ask the question, who does this sound like? And many Jewish people will say, oh, it sounds like Jesus. Many Jewish people, when they read this, say, don't quote the New Testament to me. And the missionary says, no, this is from the Hebrew Bible, from the book of Isaiah. Many Jewish people are so shocked by reading this, they feel it sounds so Christological, they automatically assume it can only be from the New Testament. <clears throat> Most Christians, you should know, believe that all they need to do is have a Jewish person read this passage and they will convert. They believe this is that powerful, that clear. So, basically, the way Christians, if you haven't caught the gist of this, use this passage, is to claim that it is the major teaching in the Bible about the Messiah, and that it describes and predicts for us the life and career of Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, this is the best 
proof from the Bible that Jesus was the Messiah. That's essentially the Christian argument. <clears throat> now, what we want to do tonight is tackle this chapter in two parts. First, we want to look critically at the Christian point of view, and then we want to look at a different way of reading it. First question. Is this chapter, does this chapter clearly identify Jesus of Nazareth? Now, the problem from a Christian point of view is that it doesn't. The major, one of the major problems from a Christian point of view is that it doesn't identify who it's speaking about. It might, from a Christian point of view, be talking about the Messiah. And we will yet question that. But even if we accept the Christian premise, which we won't, but even if we accept the Christian premise that this is a chapter talking about the Messiah, it doesn't point to Jesus necessarily. All it would be saying is that the Messiah will suffer, possibly die, atone for sins. It doesn't tell you that the person that did that was Jesus of Nazareth. It could easily apply to any person in history who suffered. It could apply to the other people who were crucified by the Romans. It could apply to the Jews who were tortured, like Rabbi Akiva. It could apply to any of the Jews martyred in the Holocaust. It could apply to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, who suffered and was oppressed and was hated. So the problem, the major problem from a Christian point of view, is that this passage does nothing to support the claims made for Jesus. You see, Christians are able to plug Jesus into this passage. Once they believe in Jesus, they can say, oh, you see, Jesus fits into this chapter. But they cannot derive Jesus from this chapter. Christians believe based upon faith. They, based upon faith, say this is talking about Jesus. But it's only based upon faith. There's nothing in this chapter that points to Jesus specifically. And that's the problem we saw in the proof-texting class called circular reasoning. It only works for Jesus if you begin by assuming Jesus was the Messiah who died for our sins. If you begin with that premise, then you go back, oh, you see, look, Isaiah here is talking about Jesus. But if you begin with Isaiah, all Isaiah says, even from a Christian point of view, is that there will be someone, the Messiah, who dies or suffers for sins. Well, why do we assume it's Jesus did that? Everyone hears the problem here, the weakness of the Christian assertion. They're not proving anything. They're simply making an assertion that they go back and support, again, by shooting an arrow first and then drawing the target around it. Now, you have to appreciate the critical nature of this weakness because, again, this is the nuclear bomb in the missionary arsenal. This is their best punch. This is the best argument they have. And their best argument still does not prove Jesus. That's problem number one. Problem number two is probably more serious. What about this chapter? If you were to have read Isaiah chapter 53, starting with the end of 52, what about this chapter tells you it's messianic? This is a more primary question. Forget about whether it's talking about Jesus. What about this chapter tells you that it's describing the Messiah? And this is also a very, very critical problem for Christianity. If you were to have read this chapter in 10 BCE, or to have read this chapter in the time of Isaiah, would you have read this chapter and say, praise God, a passage that tells me about the coming of the Messiah? Well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But the question is, is this passage clear? 
Is there anything clearly indicated in this chapter we just read which would point you in the direction of saying, oh, obviously, this is talking about the Messiah? The answer is no. An honest answer would be there's nothing in this chapter which would lead me to believe that it was describing the Messiah. At best, it's unclear. At best, it's unclear. So we're dealing here with a passage that's the best punch in the missionary arsenal, and yet it's very unclear. It doesn't point to Jesus. And more damaging is that there is absolutely no corroboration for it anywhere in the Bible. If you were to assume, or to assert, if you were to assert that this is speaking about the Messiah, and it is the central teaching in the Bible about the Messiah, it has no corroboration. The missionaries themselves have no other passages in the Bible that tell you, you know what? The purpose of the Messiah is to come to die for, for an atonement of sins. The whole case hangs on this chapter in Isaiah. That's a very embarrassing reality. Because we would assume that if it was the most important concept in the Bible, and from a Christian point of view it is, that the Bible wouldn't be cheap with its words. The Bible would say it a few times. The Bible would consistently develop it. And the Bible would do it in a clear fashion. And you have to appreciate this. The passages that we looked at from a Jewish point of view are clear. Christians agree they're talking about the Messiah. Everyone agrees. When you read all the verses that we looked at that point to the Jewish Messiah, everyone agrees. There's no question about it. That is a messianic passage. How strange it is that the Christian passages are not clear, not one of them. And this is the best that there is. The best they have is a passage which is not clear, doesn't point to Jesus, isn't corroborated, isn't consistent. So we're standing here on very, very weak ground from a Christian point of view. I would agree that once you believe in Jesus, once you make that jump and accept Jesus as the Messiah and die for your sins, then if you go back to the Bible, this will sound pretty good. But it only works in that direction, in reverse. It's very difficult to go from the Bible to Jesus. Let's go back for a second and let's assume that the missionary position is correct. Let's assume that Christians are right and that this is a prophecy about the Messiah. Let's assume that when Isaiah wrote the book, okay, Isaiah wrote the book about 700 years before Jesus, so he was writing, right? And Isaiah intended to be writing a prophecy about the Messiah. And he intended to make it very clear so that anyone who reads it would know that they're reading a very central passage in the Bible about the Messiah. Let's assume the missionaries are right. So here Isaiah writes his book and he's intending to convey information about the Messiah so that all Jewish people from now on would know what to expect. And not only did he write this, but he instructed his pupils as well. Isaiah did not write the book of Isaiah in South America somewhere and then ship it Right, Air Express to Israel and have it dropped off in a post office and people now pick up the book of Isaiah in the land of Israel and say, oh, what does this mean? Isaiah was a Jewish prophet who lived in Israel, had students. So presumably when he wrote this book, he wrote it to talk about the Messiah and he explained to people, look at this chapter, boys and girls, it's talking about the Messiah and everyone would know. This is what Isaiah was writing about. Everyone would know that the, Isaiah, that the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die because that's what the book of Isaiah writes. That would be the Christian position apparently. That's what the chapter means. That's what Isaiah meant. 
Now, if you were a Jewish person living 2,000 years ago, if you went to Hebrew school or you were just someone out in the marketplace and they asked you, oh, have you ever heard of the concept of the Messiah? So if you did, if you were a Jew living 2,000 years ago and you heard of such an idea, the information you got wouldn't have come from television. It came from the Bible. So presumably anyone living 2,000 years ago who knew about the concept of the Messiah would have the primary sources. They would know what the most important prophecies were. Presumably the followers of Jesus knew that Isaiah spoke about a person who would come and die for their sins. Again, this is the Christian assertion. So if you turn to the next page, on the top of the page it says Matthew chapter 16. And this is a passage from the New Testament, and I want to just put it in context for you. You should realize Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. I hope you're all aware of that. There isn't one statement in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am the Messiah. So here, in the book of Matthew, finally, after 16 chapters, he asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, exactly, that's who I am. Then Jesus says, starting here in verse 21, from that time forth, Jesus began to show to his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter said, Praise God! You must be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You know what Peter says, right? No, Peter doesn't say that. You would assume that if Peter had ever been going to a Hebrew school, if Peter grew up in a Jewish environment, he would have known. Because when Jesus said, who am I? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. Where did Peter get such a concept of the Messiah from? So if he knew about the concept of the Messiah, he probably would have known the most important passage in the Bible that tells you the Messiah is going to come to die for the sins of the world. And yet, Jesus says, I'm supposed to die, you know, and go to Jerusalem and be killed and suffer and then come back on the third day. Peter doesn't say, oh, great, because you must be the person Isaiah spoke about. Peter says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. He says, God forbid, that can't happen to you. Peter never expected the Messiah to be tortured and die and be killed. So you clearly see, look at Mark chapter 9. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I would propose that there never was such a concept. And that's why his disciples are a bit surprised to hear of it. No one ever understood Isaiah 53 to be predicting the death of the Messiah. Now let's take this one step further. If Christians assert that Isaiah chapter 53 is a description of Jesus, then what we would expect is that the information in Isaiah 53 would correlate with what we know about Jesus. This is the claim that we have to examine. Does the life of Jesus as we know it fit the picture painted by Isaiah chapter 53? Regardless of who Isaiah is speaking about, does Jesus fit the picture? So one of the statements that the New Testament, I'm sorry, that the book of Isaiah makes about this servant in verses 2 to 3, chapter 53, 2 to 3, is that this servant would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The, the chapter here speaks about the servant as being someone 
who was marred in appearance in chapter 52, verse 14. He was beyond human semblance and his form was beyond that. They describe someone who's disgusting, disfigured, horrible to look at. People turn their faces away from him. That's a description of Isaiah. Isaiah paints a picture of a servant who is disgusting, horrible, ugly. Question, is that how Jesus looked? Well, the real answer to that is we don't know how Jesus looked. However, if it's worth anything, how is Jesus pictured universally by all Christian artists and descriptions? He's a hunk. He's an Adonis. He's a beautiful man. He looks you know, like he could be one of the glamour models. Long, beautiful hair, a beautiful face. He is never pictured, there isn't one picture in all of Christian history of any such ugly, disgusting person that's hard to look at. But more importantly, this is the more serious point, the passage in the book of Isaiah describes the servant as someone who is despised and rejected. Despised and rejected. And is that fit what we know about Jesus of Nazareth? The answer is no. Basically, the New Testament tells us he was immensely popular. He was an immensely popular preacher. He cured many, many people. People flocked from all over the world to come to him. He had people following him all over the place. Let's look at the sheet here, second sheet. Matthew, Mark chapter 3 in the New Testament. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around the Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so they would not crush him. This is a passage which comes up over and over again throughout the Gospels. Luke chapter 2. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. People loved him. He became more and more popular. Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returns to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. So the New Testament doesn't, take a, doesn't present us with a picture of Jesus who spent his whole life in infamy, people hating him, being ignored. People, it's not like that. The basic picture is of someone who is pretty much very, very popular throughout his ministry. Was he despised? Well, the New Testament seems to say that there were a handful, maybe a courtyard full of Jews that wanted to kill him. So he did have his enemies. But if all Isaiah is speaking about is someone who happened to have some enemies or someone who was hated, that could apply to anyone in the world. Isaiah is not speaking about someone who was hated for a few hours or had a few enemies. He says he was despised and rejected, meaning he's describing this servant as someone who is roundly despised and rejected. That would be what Isaiah is describing. Someone who is characterized by being despised and rejected. The same, by the way, as it says later on. I'm not sure we're going to get to this, but it speaks about the servant as being someone who suffered and who was in great pain and agony. Now, Jesus, we don't know, had any organic diseases. We don't know of Jesus being someone who suffered at all during his lifetime. He had a couple of hours on the cross. But Isaiah speaks about a man of suffering, a man of pains. doesn't speak about someone who will have a few hours of pain in his lifetime. I'm sure every person that's walked the earth has had his day or two of pain. You might have a toothache for two days. You might have abdominal cramps. You might have whatever torture you're going through that wouldn't make you a man of pains. 
Every person goes through a little bit of pain. But they describe the servant as someone who's characterized by pain and suffering. It's not clear that Jesus ever went through that. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7, it says that the servant didn't open his mouth or protest his fate. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. So Isaiah describes a servant who does not protest, does not open his mouth, goes passively like a sheep to his slaughter. Does that describe accurately what we know about Jesus? Well, on the sheets here, in the book of John, chapter 18, at his trial, Jesus answers the Romans and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. What is Jesus telling the Romans? The Romans have him up on charges of sedition, of fermenting political revolt. So Jesus says, you have nothing to worry about from me. I'm not someone that has a physical kingdom. I'm not trying to set up a kingdom with politics and with rulers and with guns and ammunition. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm coming here to start a spiritual world. So there's nothing to worry about from me. He here argues a very, very forceful and cogent argument to free himself from the Romans. In Matthew 26, in the garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion, it says in verse 39, And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus at the last moment says, You know what, God? I'd rather not go through with this. Maybe I shouldn't be going through with this. So sometimes if Jesus goes to his fate here without protesting or without questioning. Jesus here is questioning whether he should be killed, whether he should be crucified. Look what happens on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 46, and about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, 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 lama shabachtani. That's a corruption of the Hebrew, lama azavtani. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So does Jesus picture as someone who goes to his death without protesting, without saying anything, like a sheep to the slaughter? What happens in the Talmud when Rabbi Akiva is going to his death? Everyone know the story? Yeah. When Akiba was taken out for execution, it was the hour for the recital of the Shema. And while they combed his flesh with iron combs, that's how he went to his death. He had his flesh scraped off with iron combs. He was accepting upon himself the kingship of heaven. So as he was being tortured to death, he was saying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. His disciples said to him, Our teacher, even to this point, I mean, that you're going to be this religious, that you're going to say the Shema to torture you to death? He said to them, All my days I've been troubled by the verse that you shall, love the God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. He said, I never understood that verse, which I interpret to mean even if he takes your soul. You should love God even if God takes your soul. I said, when will I ever have the opportunity of fulfilling this, of actually worshiping God and praising God as he's taking my life from me? Now that I have the opportunity, shall I not fulfill it? So he went to his death saying the Shema, reciting his love of God. You have throughout Jewish history, Jewish people going to their deaths the Jews going through the concentration camps saying the Shema as they went to the gas chambers, singing Animanin, singing that they believed in perfect faith, that God would redeem them. So you have a picture here of Jesus who doesn't quite measure up to simple Jews. And he was supposed to be God himself, or the Son of God. And yet, he protests before the crucifixion, 
he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not the kind of thing that Rabbi Akiva said. In chapter 53, verse 9, Isaiah says that the servant will not be violent. Right? That's what Isaiah says here. Although he had done no violence. So the servant will be someone who did no violence. Does this refer to Jesus? Is Jesus someone that we could say did no violence? If you look on your sheets in chapter 8 of the book of Luke, chapter, verse 32, there was a hillside, a large herd of swine were feeding, and the demons, there was someone that was possessed by demons. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these swine. So he gave them his permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And the Bible is a book which has dozens of teachings about being sensitive to the feelings and the rights of animals. Interestingly enough, there are more teachings in the Bible about treating animals than treating other human beings. And yet Jesus here, if he was God, knew that these demons would cause this effect in these swine. And yet, for some reason, he is willing to let these pigs unnecessarily all die. In Luke chapter 19, there's a parable about Jesus where he says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Many Christians, by the way, are shocked when they find out this is something that Jesus would have said. Not the kind of thing that you would assume Mahatma Gandhi saying, someone that was truly a man of no violence. Jesus says, just bring them here and slay them in my presence. Matthew chapter 21. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he was hungry. Jesus got very hungry. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. So he said to it, let no fruit grow on you henceforth forever. And the tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? So Jesus here is hungry, and he sees that the tree has no fruits. What does he do? He curses the tree. Now we have some information from the book of Mark, chapter 11, which tells us something interesting. Seeing a fig tree far off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Why? For the time of figs was not yet. This wasn't even the season for growing figs. And he has the power to curse this tree so it should rot and never produce fruit again. He certainly could have blessed it so it would produce fruit. The Bible, by the way, speaks out very strongly about wantonly destroying fruit trees. We know that even when you're sieging, when you're lying siege to a city and you're fighting in a war where there's life and death on the line, the Bible says do not chop down any fruit trees. And yet Jesus here unnecessarily destroys this tree where he simply could have blessed it. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Think not that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. John chapter 2. Jesus found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge, a whip of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. You have a picture here of someone who's going into the temple with a whip, beating up on the people, kicking them out and throwing them out. It's hard to say this is a person who did no violence. It's not a very, very neat fit. Again, it's saying Jesus was someone who did no violence, someone who didn't have any violence. John 18, Jesus said, 
We did this verse already. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep it from me. Keep me from being handed over to the Jews. So he's saying, I don't have a kingdom that's political. If it was political, my followers would fight. Look at Luke chapter 22. He said to them, but now the one who has a purse, Jesus speaking, the one who has a purse must take it and likewise a bag and one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. He tells his followers, if you don't have a sword, you have to sell your clothing to go buy a sword. What happens when the Roman soldiers come and take Jesus away? One of his followers cuts off the ear of the high priest. They weren't people who were assuming that it was supposed to be a nonviolent movement. He tells his followers, go buy swords. They're willing to fight when it comes down to it. And yet the book of Isaiah describes the servant as someone of no violence at all. Then it says in verse 9, he had no deceit in his mouth. His servant did no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In John chapter 18, again in his trial, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus claims to be a paradigm of full disclosure. I was always up front. Everything was clear. Everything up front. I never kept any secrets. That's what Jesus says here. And yet, in Mark chapter 4, his disciples were bothered because Jesus always taught in parables. Throughout the New Testament, he tells parables which are very strange. And his disciples never know what he's talking about. They always say, what do, you, what do you mean by that, Jesus? When he was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them in Mark chapter 4, verse 10, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables. Why? This is a strange reason. In order that they may indeed look but not perceive, and may indeed listen but not understand, so they may not turn again and be forgiven. Jesus says, I don't want these people to ever come to the truth and be forgiven. That's why I speak to them in mysteries and in parables. Yet Jesus said to the Romans, he never spoke in secret. Mark 16, I will give you the kingdom, keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus always tells his disciples, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Every time he does a miracle, what happens? Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 53. And they laughed at him, knowing that he was, she was dead. There was a young girl who died. But he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up! Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he directed them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus is constantly telling people, Don't tell anyone about this miracle. Don't tell anyone on the Messiah. Yet to the Romans, he says, hey, up front, everything in the open, no problems. Yet Isaiah says there was no deceit in his mouth. Finally, the major problem for Jesus is Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, what? That the servant would see his seed, he will see his offspring, and prolong his days. Well, certainly, when it comes to prolonging his days, Jesus loses coming and going. If Jesus were an ordinary mortal, then he didn't prolong his days. He died at 30 or 33 years of age. That was not a very long life. And if Jesus was not a mortal human being, if he was an eternal, mighty God, then it's irrelevant talking about prolonging his days. You can't prolong infinity. So the idea of prolonging the days of Jesus doesn't work out. More, more problematic is he didn't have any children. It says he will see his seed, meaning he'll have children. So Christians will say, well, having children Jesus fulfilled, 
because of all his disciples. They clearly take the idea of having children in a spiritual fashion. Everyone hear that? That's pretty clear. They'll say, yes, Jesus did have children, figuratively. So the problem with this is that the verse in Isaiah uses a very, very stark and clear word. Isaiah uses the word zerah. Zerah is a Hebrew word for seed, and it's the biblical word for sperm as well. The Bible has another word that's used for spiritual or figurative children. And that's word, not seed, but simply children. So whenever the Bible wants to speak about children of God, it never speaks about the seed of God, but it speaks about the sons or the daughters of God. For example, here in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, it says, you are the children, banim, of the Lord your God. So the Bible has a word it uses for figurative children. It's always son or daughter. It's never seed. You have a very clear illustration of this in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. Abraham was without children. And he said, My Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I am childless? And the son of my house, Ben Meshach Beiti, is the Damascene Eliezer. Abraham says that the only quote-unquote child that I have is Eliezer, the Damascene, but it refers to Eliezer as Ben, not as his Zerah, as his seed. Because clearly Eliezer isn't from his family, but he's considered, he might be considered an offspring, so he's called a Ben. Then Abram said, See, to me you have given no seed. You didn't give me any seed, Zerah. And you see, God, that the son of my house is my heir, that my son, and here the word is not Zerah, because he's speaking about Eliezer, who's simply an, uh, a disciple, or a child in a figurative sense. Suddenly the word of God came to him saying, No, that one, Eliezer, will not inherit you. Who will inherit you? None but him that shall come forth from within your bowels shall be your heir. It won't be a figurative disciple or offspring. It will be a physical person that comes from within you. You see that in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 11, when God speaks about his children, he says, My banim, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my signs, concerning my children. How does God refer to his children? Banim. Yet in Isaiah 45, verse 19, it speaks about human descendants, not in secret that I speak or in a land of darkness. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. Jacob has physical descendants. They're called seed. So here we have a very serious problem from a Christian point of view. And the bottom line here is that if you were to read the book of Isaiah chapter 53 carefully, it doesn't line up with Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a very, very clean match. It doesn't fit neatly. It describes a person in ways that are contrary to what we know about Jesus. Let's go to the next page. And here what we want to do is try to understand what does this chapter in Isaiah really talk about? What's really going on here in Isaiah? Now, one of the things that we learned about in the proof texting class was the idea of context. Right? Context is important. Missionaries often say to Jewish people, have you ever read Isaiah 53? That's the challenge. Have you ever read Isaiah 53? And I often say to missionaries, have you ever read Isaiah chapter 1? Right? It's a big book. It doesn't start in chapter 53. There's a whole bunch of chapters that surround, that, pre- that, that, that anticipate, that are, that are introduct- introductions to 53. 
So again, what Christians do is we call this biblical Rolodex. You flip through the Bible and you find what sounds good. But that's not Bible study. Bible study presumes that book is development is a chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. So what happened before chapter fifty three? And you should know there are many Christian missionaries. That's the only verse they know in Isaiah, chapter the book of Isaiah. They know it because someone directed them to it. It's not as if these are people that ever read and studied the whole book of Isaiah. So that's one question. What is the context of Isaiah chapter 53? Can we get any clues from the surrounding passages? Second question. And just keep this in the back of your mind. We saw that the Christian reading was not consistent with the rest of the Bible. There's no corroboration in the rest of the Bible for the idea that the Messiah comes to die and atone for the sins of the world. This is it. This is the only source. Now, when we read it from a, from a Jewish point of view, I'm going to be sharing with you the way Jews have read this passage. Bear that question in mind. Is the Jewish interpretation one that's borne out by corroborative passages from the rest of the Bible? That will be an important thing to consider. I'm going to share with you the key to understanding this chapter in Isaiah. And you'll see that once you have this key, everything will make very, very clear sense. But without this key, this chapter can be a very difficult chapter. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will prosper. Who is saying those words? Mm -hmm. Isaiah wrote the book, but who is giving expression? Is is Isaiah speaking about his own servant? Right? This is God speaking about God's servant. Okay? Behold, my servant will prosper. This is the key to understanding this chapter. You need to understand as you go through the chapter... Who is speaking? Once you can answer the question, who is speaking, this whole thing will become very clear and plain. God says about his servant that his servant will prosper, will be lifted up and exalted. And what does God say? Listen very carefully. In verse 15, once his servant is exalted, what is going to happen? Once the servant is exalted, what does God say is going to happen? This is going to freak out the entire world. That's what Isaiah says, right? Verse 15, when this servant is exalted, many nations will be startled, and what's going to happen to the kings? They're going to shut their mouths. So when this servant is exalted, the kings and the nations are going to freak out. Now listen, chapter 53. Who would have believed what we have heard? Now, who is speaking here? A group of people or one person? The nation. Well, Not nation. I'm just asking a question. Who is speaking? A group or an individual? Group. A group of people is speaking here in verse 1. Who would have believed what we have heard? Who would believe what we are hearing? Who's speaking here? The nation. No, who's speaking? Who would freaked out in verse 15? The kings and the nations are freaked out and shocked. Who is saying this expression? Who would have believed what we're hearing? Who's saying that? The kings and nations are speaking. This is the key to understanding Isaiah chapter 53. If you understand who is speaking, you will understand what's going on. What Isaiah has told us is that God tells us that his servant, we didn't identify who the servant is yet. 
God tells us his servant will be exalted and lifted up very high. That's number one. God tells us that when the servant is exalted and lifted up, what's going to happen? The world is going to freak out. That's what God tells us. In chapter 53, God's not speaking anymore. The people that are speaking are the people that have just been freaked out. And what do they say as an expression of being freaked out? They go, who would have believed what we are hearing? Now, what does Isaiah say is going to happen to these people? He says, they will shut their mouths like this. That's, what that, that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, when this servant is exalted, it's going to freak out the kings of these nations that they're going to shut their mouths like, oh my God. That's what they're going to say. Oh my God. So Isaiah 53 is a speech that's being made after the exaltation of the servant. And it's a speech being made by the nations of the world and more specifically by the kings of those nations. In, in, in history of the, of the world, in Jewish history especially, if you were to ask Christians for the past 2,000 years, why have the Jews been suffering for the past 2,000 years? And what, what, what would the general Christian remark be? We are basically suffering because we rejected the Messiah. That's been the basic Christian understanding of Jewish suffering. Okay? And Christians probably assume that at the second coming, right, at the second coming, when Jesus comes and everyone sees his pierced hands and feet, right, what are the Jews going to do? The Jews are going to say, hey, we made a big mistake 2,000 years ago. That would be the way the Christians would understand history. Now, listen carefully. On the other hand, imagine that in the near future the Messiah comes and it's not Jesus. So why did the Jews suffer for the past 2,000 years? We're going to understand not because they were sinful, it's because we were sinful, right? We persecuted them inappropriately. We persecuted them because they rejected the Messiah, but now we understand that they were right in rejecting Jesus. He goes in the Messiah. Right? When are they going to know that? When are the Christians going to finally know Jesus wasn't the Messiah? Not going to take this class. It's when the Messiah comes and they see it's not Jesus. That's when it's going to finally happen. That's when it will be very, very clear to them. What does it mean when it says here in Isaiah that the servant will be exalted? We're reading the book of Isaiah, we get to chapter 53, and it speaks about God's servant. And, you know what? We don't know who God's servant is, because it doesn't, does it say who God's servant is? It doesn't say who the servant is. But, if you had been reading the whole book of Isaiah from the beginning, you would know something. Had you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, especially, by the way, the chapters immediately preceding this chapter, the book of Isaiah makes it very clear who the servant of God is. It makes it painfully clear who the servant of God is. And not just the book of Isaiah, the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible tells you who the servant of God is. Let's look at a few passages in section A. Who is normally referred to as God's servant? Well, Isaiah 41, verses 8 to 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Who is the servant? Israel. 
Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 to 2. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, who will help you. So not fear, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshua, whom I have chosen. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servants. I have formed you. You are my servant. 44, verse 21. You getting the point here? Remember these things of Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. It sounds like a broken record. Isaiah 49. It's 49. It's getting very close to our chapter. Isaiah 49, verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel. Now, if you had been reading the book of Isaiah, and you came to chapter 53 now, would, you, would it come to your mind that, Oh, maybe the servant here is Israel. You, got the right, you would have a right to assume that. So you, you would be within your rights to say, oh, Isaiah here is again referring to the Jewish people. Let's look at the very next chapter in Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 17. The weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares God. What is, it, what is the heritage of the, of the servants of the Lord, by the way? That there will be weapons formed against them, Tongues will accuse them, right? They'll be condemned. So what chapter 54 is speaking about, we'll get back to this soon, is the servant being despised and rejected and condemned, right? And God says, who is the servant? The Jewish people, Israel. What did the chapter 53 of Isaiah talk about? It spoke about the servant who was despised and rejected and hated, but what will happen? They'll be exalted and raised very high. And we're going to see that this is a description of the Jewish people throughout the Bible. Now, Here's an important question. Does the Bible, because our thesis is that Isaiah 53 is a chapter discussing the Jewish people as the servants of God, who, although they were despised and rejected for most of their history, will ultimately be exalted and lifted up very high. So does the Bible ever prophecy that God's servant Israel will be exalted and lifted up? Is this consistent with the rest of the Bible? Isaiah chapter 60, listen very carefully to this passage. Chapter 60, verses 14 to 15. And the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all of those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. For they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. It's exactly what we've been discussing in our chapter. The servant is despised and rejected, but ultimately will be exalted. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 2 to 3. And the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Isaiah 61, verse 9. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring of, the Lord, of whom the Lord has blessed. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. By the way, is this idea of kings and peoples resonating in your ears? This is Isaiah 53. Kings and nations will respond to the exaltation of the servant. Malcolm chapter 2, verse 2. 
For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Finally, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 6 to 7, But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. Instead of shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Now, isn't this interesting? The Bible here, and I just gave you a few of the references, the Bible has a picture that's consistent that says the Jewish people one day will be exalted in the earth. What do you think is the central Christian objection to the idea that the servant here is the Jewish people? It's very obvious. Christians will say, wait a second. The book of Isaiah speaks about the servant in the singular. He will be despised. He will be rejected. He will, he, 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 he. So if Sodom got a singular person, how can it be referring to the entire nation of Israel? It's a very legitimate objection. The problem is that it, it assumes that a person has absolutely zero knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. If anyone is familiar with the Jewish Bible, one thing is very clear. The Bible consistently refers to the Jewish people as if speaking about a singular individual. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. Is that his plural? It's plural. Witnesses. And my servants whom I have chosen. So we see here that the servant is witnesses. The witnesses is a servant. So the plural is described as a singular. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord of Israel, My son, I'm sorry, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The Jewish people are spoken of as a singular entity, as a corporate entity. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Not them, I loved him. And called my son out of Egypt. Hosea chapter 8, verse 3. Israel has rejected the good, the enemy will pursue him. Throughout the Bible, the Bible uses the word him and a singular designation for the Jewish nation as a whole. Now, the, the pa- passage here in Isaiah speaks about, we, we saw before this servant as being someone who is disfigured, whose visage is marred, who is disgusting, difficult to look at. And we saw that it's certainly difficult to paint Jesus in those terms. If you turn the page, what I have here are the way Jewish people have been pictured throughout their history. Obviously, Jewish people are not disgusting to look at. Clearly, we're not disgusting to look at. But something very interesting happens. If you ever watch like those TV shows like The Dating Game, for example, what happens when a couple have gone out and they hate each other? It's very interesting that when you don't like someone, you're likely to describe them as unattractive after the fact. It could be that if the couple ended up liking each other, they would have found each other very attractive. But in retrospect, when people describe people that they hate, they will often describe them as non-attractive. So it's not as if the Jewish people are literally not attractive but what's fascinating is that the world that hates us thinks of us as unattractive. The world thinks of us as being ugly. But it's interesting the way Jews have been pictured throughout their history. Very different than the way Jesus has been pictured throughout Christian history. Because Jesus is someone who is admired and beloved. He's looked at, even though you would think Christians, if they were objective, 
would want to picture Jesus as someone that wasn't attractive. That's what Isaiah describes. So Isaiah describes a servant as being someone who is difficult to look at, disfigured, disformed. How interesting that throughout Jewish history, not just in the last 50 years of Nazi propaganda, throughout Jewish history, Jews have been portrayed as having tails, having big noses, being ugly, being fat, being really ugly and disgusting. Isaiah is really on target here. Isaiah says, what is going to happen when this servant, when this servant is exalted? You have to picture this. What's going to happen when the Jewish people are not despised in Israel? Don't forget, what has been most of Jewish history? We haven't been respected and admired in the world. We've been, we've been the suffering servants, right? We have been a group that has been roundly rejected and despised and hated. We haven't had many admirers in our 3,300 plus years of sojourning the earth. So you have a history of the Jewish people as a real despised, rejected lot. And the prophet says that the servant, the Jewish people, will be exalted. We will be exalted. So what is going to happen when the Jewish people are exalted? Is that going to come as a surprise to people? Or are they going to say, oh, big deal. So Isaiah here says, Isaiah says very clearly, he this servant will startle many nations. It's going to really freak out the world when this happens. P.S. When is this going to happen, by the way? When are the Jewish people going to be exalted? In the Messianic age. So this passage in Isaiah is a Messianic prophecy. It's speaking about what is going to happen when the Messiah comes, but it's not speaking about the Messiah. It's not a prophecy about the Messiah himself, but it's speaking about what is going to happen when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, the Jewish people will be exalted. What is going to happen when that occurs? It's going to startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of it. For that which they have not been told, they shall see. They were never told this. You think nations of the world expect that at the end of days, it's the Jews who will be resplendent, renowned, exalted. That was never part of the game plan. That which they had not been told, they shall see. That which they had not heard, they will understand. It will finally come clear to them. But they never expected this. That's why it's going to freak them out. And what are they going to say when they get freaked out? They're going to go, who what is believably hearing? Here they read it in the newspapers and the New York Times, go to the mail, they're seeing this whole you know, the, the, the Jewish people rising, emerging, exalted. Who would have believed what we're hearing? The people will not believe it. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Let's look at this clearly. Does the Bible have any other passage which describes that the nations of the world are going to be shocked at the end of history? Look at the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 15 to 16. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, I will show unto them marvelous things, the nations shall see and be confounded. They shall lay their hands upon their mouths. What did Isaiah say? Kings will shut their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. I want to picture for a second. If the Messiah comes tomorrow, and the Messiah shows up, and it's not Jesus. The Messiah comes, what do you think the Pope in Rome, his reaction is going to be? Or Jerry Falwell. Or Jimmy, just think of it for a second. Jerry Falwell in front of his big Baptist church, 30 million people there. The Messiah comes, and it's not Jesus. What do you think you're going to see on Jerry Falwell's face? You'll see this. 
Oh my God. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's what Isaiah predicts. Nations will shut their mouths. What does Micah say? They will lay their hands upon their mouths. Isaiah 41, verse 11. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. Those who quarreled with you shall be as naught and lost. Jeremiah 16, 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things of no benefit. What the Bible says is at the end of days, it's the nations of the world, and then it comes to the Jews and say, You know what? You were right, and we were wrong. That's what the prophet's saying here. A fascinating proof for this is that the nations are going to say, who would have believed what we are hearing and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What are they shocked at? They're shocked at the arm of the Lord. What is the arm of the Lord? What does it mean when God manifests his holy arm in the sight of the world? What does that refer to? Here we have a very, very simple way of understanding. We simply go to the rest of the Bible and see. What does the rest of the Bible speak about when it refers to the arm of the Lord. Chapter is 52 to 54. And let's look at something amazing here. These are the surrounding chapters. Let's try and understand what is the theme of these chapters. Chapter 52, you'll see right in the beginning, it's speaking about Jerusalem and Zion, right? Look at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. So the subject here is Israel, the Jewish people. And what is it speaking about the Jewish people? Let's look at verse 2. It's a captive Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So it's speaking about the Jewish people in their exile and captivity. Verse 3 says what? For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. Were the Jewish people persecuted because they were evil, they did wrong? It says you were sold for nothing. And shall you be redeemed with money, without money? So thus says the Lord God, Long ago my people went down to Egypt to reside there as aliens. The Assyrian too has oppressed them without cause. Were the Jewish people oppressed for any good reason in history? No, we were oppressed for no good reason. Now therefore what am I going to do, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away without cause? Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace who brings good news and announces salvation. What does the word salvation mean? We saw this last week. Salvation always refers to physical and physical and political rescue of individuals or people from oppression. So there's going to be salvation to Zion. Look at verse 9. Break forth together into singing your ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What's going on here in verse in chapter 52? It's speaking about the Jewish people who were afflicted in their history, but God will redeem them. And what is going to happen? The nations of the world are going to what? The nations will see when God redeems the Jewish people. Look at verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Clearly, by the way, salvation is something physical. If it was spiritual, you couldn't see it. Okay? If it meant salvation, meant the Jewish were saved from their sins, you can't see that. They see the salvation because salvation is physical and political. 
So chapter 52 in Isaiah speaks about what? The Jewish people being oppressed, being oppressed without reason, and God redeeming them, and the nations seeing God bearing his arm in the sight of all the nations and seeing the salvation of God. Skip over to chapter 54. Chapter 54, the exact same imagery that Israel will be oppressed and yet redeemed in the future. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Burst into song and shout for you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the sight of your tent and let the curtains of your inhabitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread out to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess the nations and will settle the desolate towns. Is it speaking about one person here? No, it's speaking about a nation who will dispossess the other nations. And the Bible here speaks about the Jewish nation as a woman. Throughout the Bible, by the way, it shouldn't be surprising, the imagery of the Jewish people as a woman who is the lover of God is not unusual. The whole Song of Songs uses that kind of imagery. What does does God say here in verse 4? God says to the Jewish people, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be discouraged, for you will not suffer disgrace. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the disgrace of your widowhood you will remember no more. Because in verse 5, God is the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. God will redeem you from your shame, from your persecution, from your suffering. And then in verse 14, In righteousness you will be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror it shall not come near you. What this chapter is saying is, again, you had throughout your history fear, oppression, hostility, and God says it's all going to change, you'll be redeemed from that. And we see in verse 17 at the bottom, God promises, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall prosper, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of who? Of the servants of the Lord, the Jewish people. And your vindication from me, says the Lord. So chapter 52 speaks about the suffering of the Jewish people in history and their ultimate redemption. Chapter 54 speaks about the suffering of the Jewish people in history and their ultimate redemption. Is there any reason to assume chapter 53 is radically different? So what happens in 53? The same story. The Jewish people who were despised, rejected, persecuted will be exalted, redeemed, lifted up. Where do we see this? in the Torah where did it speak about God revealing his holy arm and that that refers to the salvation of the Jewish nation nothing about the Messiah being redeemed we already read 52 verses 9 to 10 Isaiah 62 verse 8 the Lord swore by his right hand and by the arm of his strength what? what does that mean? God's right hand I will no longer give your grain to your enemies, and your foreigners shall no longer drink your wine for which you have toiled. The Jews will be redeemed from their enemies. Isaiah 63, verse 12, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. The arm of God is the physical rescue of the Jewish people from oppression. Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. After that he will go and let you go. You have many references in Exodus to the mighty hand of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 34. Has God ever tried to take for himself a nation from within a nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by a war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm? Finally, Psalm 89 verse 10. You yourself did crush... Rahab, like one who is slain, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. 
Throughout the Bible, God's mighty arm is the physical redemption of the Jewish people. Here, Isaiah speaks about the infancy of the Jewish people. For he, the Jewish people, grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry land. He had no form or comeliness that we should look upon him and no appearance that we should lighten him. The nations are saying here that the origins of the Jewish people were very humble. Their origins were in a desert, out of slavery. They had very humble origins. And throughout the Bible, we see the imagery of the Jewish people being described as, guess what? Plants. Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 to 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land. That sounds a lot like Isaiah, doesn't it? And in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Hosea 13, verses 4 to 5. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior beside me. I care for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Jewish national suffering is described as sickness and wounds. When the Bible describes the suffering of the Jewish people, it describes it as an individual who is sick and wounded. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17. For I will restore your health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion, no one cares for her. The nations of the world oppress the Jewish people, but God will restore our wounds. So the suffering of the Jewish nation is described as sickness and wounds. Again, there are many references in the Bible. I only gave you four here. Isaiah 53, verse 3. For he, the servant, was despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and well acquainted with disease, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Does the Bible ever describe the Jewish people as despised and hated? Yeah. Ever? Yes. The Bible always describes the Jewish people as being despised and rejected. How many times does the Bible speak about the Messiah being despised and rejected? Anyone know? Only once if you accept the Christian interpretation of Isaiah 53. That's it. Meaning, if you buy the Christian explanation of Isaiah 53, that would be the only reference in the Bible to the Messiah being rejected and despised. But here, if it's describing the Jewish people, does the Bible ever describe the Jewish people as being despised and rejected? All the time. Look at Isaiah chapter 60, verses 14 to 15. The sons of them that afflicted you will come bending unto you. They that despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord of Zion, the Holy One of Israel, whereas you've been forsaken and despised with no passerby, will make you in everlasting pride the joy of every generation. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 28 to 29. And they will no longer be a prey to the nations. The Jewish people will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. And I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Isaiah 49, 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. If the Jewish people didn't suffer in history because they were wicked, because they rejected the Messiah, so why would the Jews have suffered throughout history? So again, who is speaking here in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah? Who is this, the people that are speaking? Who is saying, oh my God, what's going on? Look at this, we never... Who is speaking here? The kings, the non-Jews, the nations of the world. So one of the questions they're dealing with is, Okay, if the Jewish people are being exalted now and the Jewish people were right about the Messiah, then 
Jewish people were not suffering because they didn't believe in Jesus. They got that right. So again, why did the Jews suffer throughout the history? Not because they were evil, because we were the bad guys. We were the people that were evil. So the entire chapter here of Isaiah 53 is a confession. This is a speech that's being made by the nations of the world. They're the ones that are saying at the end of history, oh my God, look what we're seeing. We're not seeing what we expected to be seeing. We expected Jesus to come down. They're not seeing that. They're seeing the Jewish Messiah. They're seeing the Jewish people exalted. They're seeing a completely different story than they expected to be seeing. And now they wonder, oh, now we understand what, what happened to the Jewish people throughout their history. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely our diseases he did bear, and our pains he carried. What does that sound like? The non-Jews are saying, he carried our diseases and pains. That sounds like scapegoating. That sounds like they're realizing, oh, now I understand. What, now we understand why the Jews suffered. Because we scapegoated them. Because we put our troubles on them, the Jews. You'll see how this comes out very clearly. But we considered him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Why did we persecute the Jews? We persecuted the Jews because we thought that God rejected the Jews. We considered him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We only thought we were doing God's dirty work. We assumed that because God was angry with the Jews, because God was upset that Jesus was rejected, that we should persecute the Jews. But he, again, who is the he here? The Jewish people, the, the servant. But he was wounded from our transgressions. He was wounded from our transgressions. We have here, by the way, an important mistranslation in most Bibles. If you remember from the text that we read before, which is a Christian text, most Christian translations will say, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. The Hebrew is, he was wounded from our transgressions. In the Hebrew, there's no sense of vicarious atonement. It's not that the Jews were wounded or that the servant is wounded for the transgressions of other people. It's that the servant is wounded from the transgressions of other people. The nations here are saying, because we were such low lives and because we were so wicked and we were so terrible, the Jewish people suffered on account of that. He was wounded from our transgressions. We were wicked. We were sinful. He was crushed as a result of our iniquities. He wasn't crushed to atone for our iniquities. That's the Christian implication here. That the servant was crushed to atone for. It doesn't say that. It says that he was crushed as a result of our iniquities. Upon him was the suffering or the chastisement that made us whole. We thought all along that by persecuting the Jews, we would improve conditions at home. Throughout most of history, when nations were suffering, especially economically, they would point to the Jews as a scapegoat. This is not something that just happened in the last five years in the Soviet Union or in Japan. This is something which happens throughout Jewish history, that the Jewish people were scapegoated when the nations of the world were going through internal troubles. They blame it on the Jews. You blame it on the Jews. You blame it on the Jews. What do you do by blaming on the Jews? You begin to feel better, especially the government. Right? So that's what it says. Upon him, I'm sorry, upon him was a chastisement that made us whole. We thought we would come out good. We thought we would be healed by blaming it on the Jews. And with his stripes, we were healed. We thought that we'd be healed through persecuting the Jews. No, they say, 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We were the ones that were wrong. We turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We thought. We thought that what was happening, we thought that God was punishing the Jews for the Jews' own sinfulness. No. What the Gentiles now say at the end of history is, we recognize the Jews suffered because we were so depraved. Where do we see this in, in the Bible? Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 7. The nations thought that the Jewish people were rejected by God. That's what they thought all along. Jeremiah 50, verse 7. All who came upon them devoured them. Jews were persecuted by everyone. And their adversaries have said, what do the enemies of the Jews say? We are not guilty, inasmuch as they, the Jews, have sinned against the Lord, who is the habitation of the righteousness, even against the Lord, the hope of their fathers. The non-Jews would persecute the Jews, and they would think that they were doing the will of God. Jeremiah 30, verse 17. For I will restore you to health, God says, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they... The nations have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion. No one cares for her. Psalm 94, verses 5 and 7. They crush thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage. And they have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the Lord of God, the, the, nor does the God of Jacob take heed. God does not care for the Jewish people. However, does the Bible say that the Jewish people suffered due to the cruelty and the wickedness of the nations? Certainly. Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Pour out your wrath upon the nations that do not know you and upon the families who do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and, humble, and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. Psalm 94, verses 3 to 5. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked exalt? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness want themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. He's not right, these are not righteous people. These are wicked people that persecute the Jews. Psalm 83. God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. Do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out of the nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Let's do one more. Zechariah 1.15 is an important reference. But I am very angry with the nations. God says he's really angry with the nations of the world who are at ease. For while I was only a little bit angry, they furthered the disaster. This is a common theme in the Bible. Does God ever desire to punish the Jewish people in the Bible? He certainly does. For example, God desired to send the Jews into exile in Egypt 3,400 years ago. That was God's plan. And God prophesied that he would send the Jews to exile in Egypt. So if that was God's plan and he predicted that, that they would have to be slaves in Egypt, why does God punish the Egyptians? Why punish them? They were just doing God's will. So God says here, no, they weren't. I only intended to make you slaves in Egypt. I didn't desire for your children to be thrown into the water and drowned. I didn't desire for you to be tortured. So God says it's true. There are times in history where I'm going to want the Gentiles to punish you, to irritate you, but I don't want the Gentiles to torture you, kill you, wipe you out. That's what Zechariah says here. God says, I'm angry with the nations of the world. I only wanted to do a little bit to you, but they got carried away. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but did not open his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that is before his shearers is dumb and did not open his mouth. For we certainly saw didn't apply to Jesus. Now, when the Bible here speaks about the servants of God, is it referring to every single Jewish person in the history of the world? 
It's not. When it refers to Israel here, it refers to the righteous among Israel. The servants of God is not anyone who happens to be born Jewish. It's, it's those Jewish people who are servants of God, the righteous Jewish people, like Rabbi Akiva, like the people who went to the deaths in the Holocaust, innocent victims, people that maintain their allegiance to God. These people, the righteous people of Israel, went to their deaths throughout their history without rejecting God. That's what it means when it says that the Jews did not open their mouths. We did suffer for many, many, many centuries. We never said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We never rejected God. Psalm 44, verses 11 to 22. An incredible passage. Don't forget, Isaiah 53 spoke about the servant going like a lamb to the slaughter. Psalm 44. You have given us as sheep to the slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation is overwhelming me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we've not forgotten you. We've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart was not turned back. You could try and, you, God, have done a lot to push us away. And the Jewish people say, we have never rejected you. We have never, ever rejected you. Our heart was not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in, us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. For your sake we are killed all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's an incredible passage from the book of Psalms. Moving on. Chapter 53, verse 8. From dominion and judgment he was taken away, and his history who was able to relate? For he was cut out of the land of the living. What is the land of the living, by the way? What is the land of the living? In the Bible, it's Israel. You see this in Psalm 116, verse 9. Throughout the Bible, Israel is the land of the living. Was Jesus ever cut out of the land of the living? But the Jews were. The Jews have undergone several exiles from the land of Israel. Now we have a very, very serious problem from a Christian point of view. As a result of the transgression of my people, they were afflicted. Now here we have a serious mistranslation in Christian Bibles. I have here the Hebrew for you. It says, Mipesha ami nega lamo. Mipesha ami, due to the transgression of my people, nega lamo, they were afflicted. Christians translate this as, due to the transgression of my people, he was afflicted. The Christian focuses on the servants here as a singular entity, right? The Christians insist that the servant here is one person, Jesus the Messiah. And therefore, because of the transgression of my people, he was afflicted. That's how Christians translate this. The correct translation, though, lamo in Hebrew is a plural. And it's due to the transgression of my people, they were afflicted. We see from this verse very clearly that the suffering servant is not one person. It's a group of people. They were afflicted. Now, how do you know that I'm telling you the truth? Maybe Lamo means him and not them. So what I have here on the side of the page is a list of every single reference in the Bible to the word Lamo. 
And all you need to do is look at the way it's translated in those places, not just by Jewish translators, but by Christian translators. Look in the book of Isaiah, just a few chapters before. Isaiah 48, verse 21, And they thirsted not when he led them through the desert. He caused waters to flow out of the rock for them, Lamo, for them. He claved the rock also and the waters gushed out. Also in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 7, And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. So the word Lamo throughout the Bible refers to a plural group, a plural entity. This is a pretty big problem from a Christian point of view. Chapter 53, verse 9. And his grave was set with the wicked, and with the wealthy were with his kinds of deaths. Although he has done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. The Jewish people were considered wicked. We were considered throughout our history the wealthy Jews. Right? There's been an accusation against the Jews throughout the history that our grave was set with the wicked. We were considered wicked with the wealthy. Although the Jews have basically been a pretty nonviolent people. We're pretty famous for that, by the way. And neither was there any deceit in his mouth. That's a tough one. You mean Jews have no deceit in our mouth? I mean, we're known as being nonviolent, but we're also known as being tricky, right? This is a very strong accusation against the Jewish people, all those sneaky Jews. Let's see what the Bible has to say. The book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall neither commit injustice nor speak lies, neither shall deceitful speech be found in their mouth. Again, who is the servant of the Lord here? It's not any Jew in any Tom, Dick, and Harry. It's talking about the righteous remnant of the Jews. That's who the servant is. And the Bible says among that group of people, there is not deceit in their mouths. That's what the Bible says. They shall not commit injustice or speak lies, neither shall deceitful speech be found in their mouth, for they shall graze and lie down with no one to cause them to shudder. Look at the, the rest of that passage, by the way. It speaks of the Jewish people in Isaiah 53 terms. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shadow Israel, rejoice and jubilate wholeheartedly, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your afflictions. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall no longer fear evil. That's why Isaiah 3 says that throughout the history we feared evil and at the end God will remove our afflictions. On that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, Have no fear, O Zion, let your hands not be slack. The Lord your God is in your midst, O mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will be silent in his love. He will jubilate over you with song. Behold, I wreak destruction upon all those who have afflicted you at that time. And I will save the one who limps and I will gather the stray one. I will make them a praise and a name throughout all the land where they have suffered shame. And at that time I will bring them, and at that time I will gather you, for I will make you a name and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your captivities before your eyes, says the Lord. So among these people that will be redeemed at the end of time in the Messianic age, the Bible testifies to the fact that they will be people of no deceit in their mouths. Chapter 53, verse 10. And the Lord wished to crush him, and he made him ill. If he would offer himself as a guilt offering, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the purpose of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is a very, very difficult verse for Christians, for more than one reason. The Bible here says that God desired to persecute the Jews. It was God's will that the Jews go through some suffering. However, God wanted to see how the Jews would react. 
if he would offer himself as a guilt offering, if the Jews would take their suffering and raise it up as an offering to God. Now, what, when did this first happen in Jewish history? When did God first, uh, in some way, afflict a Jewish person to see how he would react? This was the first test of the first Jew. Not the first test. This is the great test of the first Jew, Abraham. God wants to test Abraham. And he says, Abraham, kill your son. This is worse than the Gentiles killing your kids. You have to kill him yourself. And after Abraham is willing to go through with the sacrifice, God, ah, God says, now I know that you truly fear me. So God desires to test the Jewish people, often by making them suffer. And he says here, if the Jewish people will take their suffering and raise it up as an offering to God, take it as something that's a holy test, then we will be rewarded. Now, there's a problem here for Christianity. Because it seems as if the servant has some volition here. It seems as if the servant has a choice whether to accept the suffering and not accept it. If, from a Christian point of view, Jesus was a divine being who was pre-programmed to die as God's son as a sacrifice, Jesus had no volition. Jesus couldn't go down to earth and say, God, I'm not doing it. So from a Christian point of view, this doesn't make any sense. What do you mean, if he would offer himself? Jesus had no choice. It's human beings like the Jewish people who have a choice of accepting the trial and being loyal to God or, God forbid, rejecting God and cursing God. And what is the reward here? God says, if you, the Jewish people, pass this test, then I will reward you with long days, with children. Is it possible to think about a divine creature being rewarded? What, is Jesus going to get another Cadillac? another home, another vacation. The idea of giving a divine creature a physical reward, like long days or children, doesn't make any sense. The only group of people that can be rewarded with such things are human beings. Now, does the Bible ever speak about the Jewish people being promised with the reward of children and long days? Again, are we consistent with the rest of the Bible? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. I call heaven and earth as witnesses. Before you I have placed life and death, a blessing and curse. You must choose life so that you and your seed will survive. If you choose to love the Lord your God, to obey him and attach yourself to him, this is the sole means of survival and long life when you dwell in the land that God swore to your fathers. Right? God promises long life and children if we will be close to God. Deuteronomy 28, verse 11, The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your body and in the fruit of your, bre of your beast you will have children. Jeremiah 23, verse 3. Then I myself shall gather the remnants of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. Here, God is promising the Jewish people with long days. Chapter 53, verse 11. From the labor of his soul he shall see, he shall be satisfied with his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will cause many to be just, and their iniquities he shall bear. Will the Jewish people have any role in causing the world to be righteous? That's what it's saying here. That if the Jewish people fulfill their mandate, fulfill their purpose, through their knowledge, 
the righteous one, my servant, will cause many to be just. We will cause many in the world to be just. That's again repeated throughout the Bible. Let's just look at a few examples. Genesis 28, verse 14, Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you, and in your descendants, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isaiah 49, verses 3 and 6, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I will also make you a light unto the nations, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. You as a Jewish people will have an effect upon the rest of the world and make them righteous. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We will be as priests to the rest of the world. We saw that in Zechariah 8.23. The nations will come to the Jews and say, let's grab on to you Jews. We've heard God is with you. And finally, the last verse in the chapter, 53 verse 12, page 29. God concludes by saying, Therefore I will allot a portion to him with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the mighty because he poured out his soul to the death. The Jews were willing to go to their death to fulfill their mandate, and he was numbered with the transgressors, but the Jews were considered evil by the nations of the world. And the Jews bore the sin of many. We suffered because of the sins of many people in the world, and they made intercession for the transgressors. Even though we were being persecuted, we prayed for the people that were persecuting us. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 5 to 6. Does the Bible ever speak about the Jewish people receiving the rewards, physical rewards, at the end of history? Then you will see and be radiant, radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Does it make sense for God to give Jesus more camels? An infinite being does not need physical wealth. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephra, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of God. The Jewish people pray for the nations of the world. Look at the bottom of the page, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. These are not friendly people. These are the people that are persecuting you in exile. And pray to the Lord on their behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. The presentation I gave you tonight, that Isaiah 53 speaks about the Jewish people who will suffer throughout the history and be redeemed by God and exalted, it's a very powerful presentation. It's so powerful that you should know almost a majority, almost a majority of Christian commentaries to the Bible accept that interpretation. It's going to sound pretty strange to you because you've been assuming that all Christians assume this is Jesus. All Christians assume this is the Messiah. That's not the case. Christian missionaries who, were, who are essentially using the Bible as a propaganda tool to convert people and who don't really study the Bible objectively, Christian missionaries will, will swear on a stack of Bibles this is talking about the Messiah and Jesus. But Christians who are less evangelistic, Christians who are not so obsessed with using the Bible as a tool to convert people, who are objective scholars, you should realize a great many accept the Jewish reading of this chapter. I know I've quoted one for you here. This is one of the most important commentaries to the Bible today. It's the New English Bible, Oxford Study Edition. It's written by a team of several dozen Christian scholars. Let's look at what they write here. 
This is the commentary to chapter 53, 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. This is the first, fourth servant song about the suffering servant. Who is it talking about? Israel. The servant of God has suffered as a humiliated individual. However, the servant endured without complaint because it was a vicarious suffering, suffering for others. Nations and kings will be surprised to see the servant exalted. The crowds, pagans, and nations among whom the servant Israel lived speak here, saying that the significance of Israel's humiliation and exaltation is hard to believe. They can't imagine Israel being exalted and, and delivered. So you see here a Christian commentary to the Bible giving over what I gave you tonight. Now, why are they constrained to give this interpretation? I would argue because it's the only one that really reads clearly in the Bible. And this is not the only one. There are literally hundreds of Christian commentaries today who will take this approach to the Bible, to Isaiah. And I would just have you know that through the rest of the course, most of what I'll be teaching is not material that only Jews accept. Virtually most of the Christian scholars today will agree with almost everything we're going to present in this class. So don't think that it's the entire Christian world against the Jewish people. We have a tremendous amount of support in the Christian community for our interpretation of the Bible. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one -on -one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish.